Uh, my name is Fritz Hager. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I have the privilege of roaming between our now five campuses. And so I'm not here as often as I used to be, and it's fun to be back and see old familiar faces, or not old faces, just familiar faces, and uh, lots of new faces. So if you are new here today, welcome to Bethel. We're very glad you're here. Um, I hope that you've stopped by and introduced yourself there at the welcome desk so that we can give you a free bag of Foundry coffee and start your week caffeinated properly. So, if you just joined us, you, you might not know, we're in the middle of a series on Romans, and we are in chapter 10 today. And before we get to the text, I want to start with a confession, and I'm a little worried about how you're going to respond to it, uh, because I think you'll think less of me when I, when I tell you this, uh, especially less of me as a man. Um, but we're family, right? So we can kind of share this stuff? Yeah, okay. Some of y'all are my family, I guess. Uh, so here it goes. Here's my confession. I am not handy. I can't fix anything. If it's broken at our house, it pretty much stays broken until Serena hires somebody to go fix it. For those of you who know him, I'm the opposite of Mark Kirkendall, who is our White House campus pastor. He's the MacGyver on staff. Um, I, I'm not sure how that happened. I don't know if I was the smart husband who messed up my first couple of projects and Serena never asked me to fix anything again. Or maybe I was just uh, too busy with working, or maybe it was that wall, uh, that kitchen painting and wallpaper project that almost ended our marriage after we'd only been married about 18 months. Um, but I, I know I'm pretty much the only one who can't fix stuff because you are going to spend $13.9 billion in 2020 on do-it-yourself projects. So, I came to the conclusion that I'm pretty much the only person in the United States that can't fix stuff. If you don't believe me, I'll give you an example. So for eight of the last 10 years, my house has had bad internet and Wi-Fi, which in terms of life impact and importance is somewhere below electricity and above hot water if you're under the age of 15. And I've tried everything. We've had multiple cable providers. They've all come out, checked everything. I must own five different routers trying to figure out how to make it all work. I've talked to the folks who do Bethel's tech. Uh, I've read everything online. And finally, I decided I had had enough and I was just going to run wires to as many things as I could run a wire to. Bypass the Wi-Fi, go straight to the internet. And so um, I took matters into my own hands. How hard can that be, right? It's just some wires and some boxes. Um, and so I got Joe, one of my sons, as my helper. And um, we went up in the attic, took some measurements, and um, decided that this was going to be something that we could really do. So I made a little sketch, bought everything, collected all the stuff on my dining room table, hooked it up, and magically it worked. So Joe and I climbed back up in the attic and um, running wires everywhere, and it, it all went pretty well. Neither of us stepped through a ceiling, which is a big win when you're up in the attic. And it, it went well until we got to my bedroom. And so 
Um, my plan was to run a cable behind the TV to where it would open up behind this big piece of furniture. You wouldn't know it was there. The problem is that I was using a broomstick uh, because I don't fix stuff, so I don't have any good tools. I was using a broomstick to like run this cable to push it down. And so the ceiling in my bedroom is higher than the ceilings in the other closets that I was used to working in. And so I couldn't reach behind the TV, but fortunately there was this blue chair. It's a blue recliner. It sits in the corner. It has not moved for 10 years that we've been in this house. And so I thought, well, if I could just get to the recliner... And so I could get to the recliner, but I could only get about this far down. Now, I don't know if y'all have a house that like someone who knew what they were doing built, but um, most plugs aren't at waist level. They're like right there. But it was behind this blue chair. And so um, Joe and I hooked everything up and it worked. We went from you know, like one, two megs down to 20 to 25. And on a good day, we can go 40 and so the internet was humming in our house, and I was very proud because for the first time in my life, I'd actually fixed something. Um, kids were happy too. Until Serena, for whatever reason, decided she wanted to rearrange the furniture in our room, and she pulled that big blue chair away from the wall and saw the nice hole that I'd left and the white cable that came out at about waist high run down to the television. And just like that, my excellent work became just okay. Maybe not even just okay. Because on closer examination, it wasn't up to her standards. And in hindsight, I know I should have gotten someone with the right equipment, someone with the right skill set. I should have hired a professional to do it for me. But fortunately, this is just an aesthetic issue, right? It, it's not like I built something that fell down on top of somebody and someone got hurt. This is just a hole in the side of our bedroom. Uh, but our passage today is about a do-it-yourself project that if you try it, you might fool us. You might fool those in your family. You might even, unfortunately, fool yourself. But the consequences to you and to those you care about are deadly. Our passage today is Romans 10, which is about do-it-yourself righteousness and its dangers. Almost 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote about living in a religious culture, one that is often based on human effort or the outward appearance that is dangerously like our culture here in Tyler, Texas today, maybe even here in our church. And unfortunately, it may include some of you walking around with all the appearances of being a Christian, which is really one who is saved by faith in Jesus. You might even think you are a Christian. Might have your friends and family pulled, but upon close examination, the question is, what or better, who are you relying on? Who are you relying on to make you right with God? Is it you or is it the finished work of Jesus? So let's turn or click to Romans 10, 
Chapter 10 is right after 9, it's before 11. And we're going to cover the whole chapter today. And I promise we'll be done before the Super Bowl. So as you're turning or clicking there, let me set some context. Ross preached Romans 9 last week, which is largely about what we call the doctrine of election. God's sovereign choice to choose who he will be gracious towards and who he will show mercy towards. And then he does that by tracing the election of Abraham, the choice of Abraham, up through the nation of Israel, Paul's fellow brothers and sisters at the time he wrote this. And he ends chapter 9 by writing, What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law? And Paul's implied answer is yes. Why, verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So Paul is going to expand on this theme of rejected righteousness in chapter 10. Israel pursuing righteousness by works instead of faith. He's going to start by talking about Israel specifically, but then the whole middle of the passage will be about everyone and then he wraps up by talking about Israel again. And then in chapter 11, which Ross will do next week, he's going to further explore both the results of Israel's rejection and their future. So chapter 10 is about the rejection of real righteousness, and I want to break it into four sections. You can write this in the margin of your Bible if you're one of those folks. Uh, verses 1 through 4 is the reason for the rejection. Verses 5 through 8 is righteousness re-explained. Verse 9 through 7 is the remedy for the rejection. And 18 through 21 is the results produced by the rejections. Lots of R's there. Good preacher moment there. Lots of alliteration. The reason, the re-explanation, the remedy, and the results. So let's look at the first four verses of chapter 10. The reason for the rejection. Paul writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes." Paul starts this chapter just like he did chapter 9, expressing his anguish over his Jewish brothers and sisters not being saved. Not being saved from the death, from eternal punishment, and from separation from God caused by their sin. And the first part of verse 2 is kind of surprising. It's surprising in that Paul says about these people who are not being saved, Paul says they have a zeal for God. They're passionate, they're enthusiastic about God, and yet they're not saved. In the negative sense, the same word can mean jealousy, but here it's positive. They are zealous over their belief in the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Paul says their zeal is misplaced because it's not according to knowledge. 
In fact, in verse 3, he says they're ignorant. So what are they ignorant of? Ignorant of the righteousness of God. In 9.30, he tells us they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Explaining in verse 33, which is actually quoting Isaiah 28, says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. His brothers and sisters rejected Jesus, who is the stumbling stone, the rock of offense. He rejected as their Messiah, their Savior. They rejected God's righteousness in human form. So instead, they continued to seek to establish a righteousness of their own. We can call it do-it-yourself righteousness. Righteousness based on your own effort, your own striving, your own goodness. But remember, Paul says these people who are zealous for God, who are very religious, who appear to be good and moral, yet when given the choice between the free gift of God's righteousness and relying on their own work and effort... They chose, as Paul says, not to submit to God's righteousness. Which I think helps to explain why this is so dangerous for them and for us. It was their pride that prevented them from submitting. Their pride was offended. It was scandalous that while what actually delivered them from the eternal consequences of their sin, what gave them peace with God was not their work, but it was their confession, their admission that on their best day, with their best effort and their best performance, they still weren't good enough, which is a hard pill to swallow. Then in verse 4, Paul says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What does end mean here? End is in something that stops or ceases. I don't think that's what Paul means here because he argues all through Romans that the key to righteousness is faith. It is belief. And that was true before Jesus was born, going all the way back to Abraham. The key to righteousness was belief. So what I think Paul means here is that Jesus was the culmination. He was the goal of the law. He was its purpose. He was its end. And our futile efforts to produce our own righteousness were meant by design to lead us to the point of expressing our failure to meet God's standard by trusting in Jesus. And his perfect fulfillment of the law, not our pitiful do-it-yourself righteousness. So that's the reason for the rejection. It's the pride that led people who believed in God enthusiastically and passionately, but in their pride chose to rely on their own effort, their own striving, instead of choosing God's gracious offer of relying on the works of his son. So that's the first section, the reason for the rejection. Now in verse 5 through 8, Paul's going to re-explain real righteousness by contrasting the impossible and therefore insufficient do-it-yourself righteousness from the law versus the simple and effectiveness 
effective righteousness of faith. Look at verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Paul's point here is that if you want to try and live by the law, you can't pick and choose. You've got to do the whole thing. Not just the Ten Commandments. You've got to do all of Leviticus. Most of us can't even finish reading Leviticus. It's complicated. There's a lot of stuff in there to do. So you can't pick and choose. You have to do it all. You have to uphold every single bit of it, and you have to do it perfectly, which is impossible for us, which means the law is not enough. It's insufficient. In verse, verse 6, Paul refers back to the writings of Moses, specifically Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14, but he reinterprets it now in light of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now this sounds really confusing, but Paul is basically making the same point that Moses did, except now it's better with Christ. Moses' point in this passage in Deuteronomy is that to know the will of God, you don't have to go up to heaven or travel across the sea, both of which would have been impossible for his audience. If you want to know God's will, what he requires, it's right here in the law. So Paul reinterprets that in light of Jesus. He says, you want to know God's will, what he requires? You don't have to go up to heaven to figure it out because Christ was resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So can you do that? Of course we can't. Or how about descending into the abyss to resurrect Christ? Can you do that? No. Nobody can but God the Father. Paul's point is that we don't have to be superheroes. But here's the good news. And Paul uses a reference here to the new covenant. The word, God's will, is no longer something that exists outside of you. But through faith and the work of the Holy Spirit is actually in our mouth and written on our heart. That's the word of faith that Paul refers to at the end of verse 8. That's God's righteousness re-explained. And the gospel is the remedy. Look at verse 9, which is one of the clearest, most succinct statements of the gospel that you will find in Scripture. The good news that we are free from the complicated, impossible requirements of the law and can choose something that is so simple. But before we look at this remedy in verse 9, I want to caution you by way of illustration. Verse 9 is so simple, it can fool us. It's simple like driving a car. So as a father of six, I'm halfway through teaching my six kids to drive. I've got three driver's license. Joe has his permit. He's learning, so be careful as you leave the parking lot today. But I, as I tell the kids, it's pretty, driving is pretty simple. 
stay in the lines and don't hit anything, right? That's pretty much the objective of driving. You do that long enough, people will think you're actually a good driver. But even though that's simple, don't crash into anything, there's a whole bunch of super complicated stuff happening in the car that we don't have to fully understand to avoid not crashing into anything. So, in the same way that back in chapter 9, we learned about all this super complicated stuff that God is doing that we don't fully understand. He's hardening, he's predestining, he's calling, he's regenerating. And all of this is complicated. All of it is hard to understand. And yet, it's simple to drive a car. And it is simple when you read verse 9. Because I kind of understand cars enough to know that there's this engine that produces some power and there's a transmission that connects and delivers that power to the wheels and the wheels have brakes that stop so you don't crash into something. I know basically how a car works, right? I know basically what Romans 9 says. I don't fully understand it. And if you were to ask me to fix a car, I've already told you I can't fix anything. I can hardly point to the parts of the car, much less actually fix it. And yet, I can still drive. So as we read verse 9 and we talk about how simple it is, don't forget the car. Verse 9, you have the remedy. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's so simple. Believe. But it requires that we come to the end of ourselves, that we humble ourselves and admit that we can't work hard enough or perfectly enough to please God outside of faith in Jesus. And when Paul says that Jesus is Lord, he means that he is God, that he is above all things. And the proof of that is the fact that God raised him from the dead. After Jesus, although perfectly innocent and without sin, died on a cross paying the price for our sin and that he was buried and yet God rose him from the dead and seated him at his right hand making him Lord over all creation. So along with verse 10 Paul is following Moses' use of both the heart and the mouth. He's not suggesting a two-step process Confess, then believe. It's not two requirements either. As Jesus said in Matthew 14, out of the abundance or the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And as Paul said over and over and over again, it is the belief that saves you. The confession is an unavoidable outward expression of that inward belief, of your real reliance on Jesus. He makes that clear in verse 10 where he says, Belief justifies you, and in the history of all mankind, there's not a single person who was justified and not saved. Which means this doesn't leave room for what some call 
a private faith. A faith that you keep to yourself. If you truly believe that God has graciously elected to call you to faith in Jesus, and you can rest in the work of Jesus and not your own to be reconciled with God to solve the biggest problem you have in your life, which is your sin, if that is the truth of what you believe, the Holy Spirit has come to live in you. He's given you a new heart. He gives you new affections. And that's something that you can't keep a secret. Now, don't forget the car and all that complicated stuff happening inside. Salvation is open to everyone who believes. Then in verse 11 and in verse 12, Paul writes, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, which means Gentile, meaning there are not two ways of salvation. There is only one way. There's not a choice. Do I want law or do I want to have faith? There's only one way, and that is through belief in Jesus Christ. <laughs> Emphasizing in verse 13 that everyone who calls on Jesus based on faith will be saved. So that's what it takes for you to be saved. The remedy for your sin problem, for my sin problem, is to simply believe. And then don't keep that to yourself. Which is part of what Paul explains by creating a chain of action in question form. Culminating in someone being able to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Look at verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So let's start at the end of that and work backwards. Someone is sent. The context here is the spread of, gospel, of the gospel across the whole known world to reach all peoples. We have that strategy today through missions and our focus on unreached peoples. There are people living in the world today who live in an area where the church is not big enough to be reproducing and send people to share the gospel with them. So the church universal sends people to go preach. But it also includes anyone who doesn't believe, which means you can be sent right here to Tyler, Texas. You can be sent to your family, to your neighborhood, to your place of work. And those sent people, they preach or they proclaim the gospel which is not only preaching like what happens in a church that I'm trying to do here, but includes the simple proclamation of truth. The truth of the failure of do-it-yourself righteousness and the wonderful grace of faith-based righteousness. And because of that, those who hear can then believe. And it's their belief that saves them. No room for private faith. Now, for some of you, you've believed for as long as you can remember. But even if you don't remember it, there was a point in time where you went from unbelief to belief. Some of you can remember that moment 
or the person who told you. For me, it was a Sunday night service in Louisville Bible Church. I was about eight years old. And we had a Dallas Seminary student who was practicing preaching. His name was Tommy Nelson. He got pretty good at it. And don't forget about the car and all the complicated stuff happening in the background, but that was the moment I chose to believe and to rely on Jesus to save me. But you know, it doesn't always work like that. A lot of times you preach, you proclaim, and no one listens. There's a lot of proud hearts out there who choose not to believe. Paul quotes Isaiah at the end of 15 and beginning of 16. And in between those references, Paul says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Which makes sense because if we went to the heavenly commissioning of Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah, you would see that he was called and commissioned to go preach and he was told that most people are not going to listen to you. They're going to ignore you. But when I read this passage, I was struck by Paul's use of obey. We often don't think of obeying the gospel in the same way we don't think of submitting to the gospel. But Paul doesn't separate belief in the gospel and obedience to God. They are one and the same to him. He summarizes this whole section in verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So two quick observations about this verse. The first is someone has to speak the words of the gospel for that person to then believe. It's not an optional step. J.D. Greer has this to say about evangelism without words. Saying preach the gospel if necessary use words. Anybody heard that? J.D. Greer says, is like me saying, tell me your phone number if necessary, use digits. People have to hear, which means someone has to speak. The second observation is that preaching and, and proclaiming, that speaking here has a specific content. Belief in God is not enough. A general statement about God is not enough. Paul calls it here the word of Christ. He calls it the word of faith back in verse 8. And he says in verse 9 that, is that, that it is that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. It's that simple. Like driving a car is simple. So that's the remedy for rejecting God's righteousness. Believe that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. And that only happens if someone speaks the words of the gospel to you. Which brings us to the fourth and final section of chapter, verses 18 through 21, the result. Here Paul's going to apply the same criteria he just um, outlined to the nation of Israel by asking first, have they heard? And Paul says, indeed they have, he's quoting from Psalm 19, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now the voice Psalm 19 refers to is actually the heavens. It's what we call general revelation. Like Paul explained back in chapter 1, 
Creation itself screams out that there is a God and we must turn to him instead of looking to ourselves. That's general revelation. But here, Paul's point is that the gospel has gone out to all the known world. And so because of that, man is without excuse. They have heard. And then Paul does something interesting in verse 19 by quoting the song of Moses, which is Deuteronomy 32, 21, uh, which Moses says is from God and it's witnessed by the heavens. So we've gone from the heavens speaking to now the heavens witnessing. Deuteronomy 32, 21 says, they have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So the Israelites turned to idols they created themselves instead of believing God. And it's this part of verse 21 that then Paul quotes. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Paul is saying that the unbelief of the Israelites is no surprise to God. In fact, it was God's plan all along prophesied by Moses 1,500 years before Jesus was born. That this simple message of believe and confess would be rejected by all but a remnant of the Jews, but it would spread like wildfire over all of the known world. Then Paul doubles down and says in verse 20, Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me, and I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So what's so bold about that? I think of a couple of things. One, those who did not seek me are the Gentiles, which is most of us in this room. And so this angered Israel who had become proud of their election and they confused their ethnic identity with their faith. And I think the other reason Paul says it's bold is because Gentile belief is proof of the simplicity of the message. People who weren't even looking for God answered his call and submitted to righteousness. Paul could have said, it's so simple, even the Gentiles get it. So those who refuse are without excuse. And so then Paul concludes the chapter with a message of hope, not hope that, his, that Israel will finally get it. The point he makes in the next chapter is that ultimately they will, but in here, he says, our hope is in God's mercy and patience towards us. So just as he was merciful and patient with Israel, he is also merciful and patient with us. So that's the story of, of chapter 10, man rejecting God's righteousness to pursue do-it-yourself righteousness, righteousness through the law, righteousness through doing, do-it-yourself righteousness instead of the simple truth of believing, of humbling ourselves to trust in the righteousness of Jesus. You know, I started this sermon by talking about dangers of living in a religious culture of, of thinking that because I have this general belief in God, because I call myself a Christian, because I'm a Texan, because I have a truck and maybe own some guns and I'm a good Republican and because I go to church that I'm a Christian. The problem with that, 
like the Jews Paul is talking about who have a zeal for God, is that almost saved is not saved. Almost saved is not saved. It's not because I call myself something that I'm saved. It's because of what I believe. So think about yourself. Think about your life. And ask yourself, do I have performance anxiety? Am I... Am I worried that I'm never going to be good enough? Is God angry at me? Maybe you're just tired. Tired of the struggle. Tired of, of fighting and of working. And you're tired. And as you survey your life, you have no peace. Or let me put it to you in the form of, of a question. If you were to die, would God let you into his heaven? And why? Why would God let you into his heaven? I want you to think about that for a second because it's the most important question anyone will ever ask you. Why would God let you into his heaven? And if your answer starts with because I do or because I don't do or because I am, that's the wrong answer. That's the do-it-yourself answer. That's pride speaking. Your answer to the question of why would God let you into his heaven needs to simply say, because I believe. Because I believe that Jesus was the Son of God who came to earth as a man who lived a perfect sinless life and died a death on the cross that should have been me, it should have been us, and that he was buried in the ground and he sat there for three days and God miraculously raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the Father and made him Lord over everything. It's that belief that gets you into heaven. So for those of us who believe, what should, what should we do with Romans 10? Should we follow the example of the Israelites and become prideful that we are chosen by God to be his people, that we're the enlightened ones who get it, that we're the elect? Answer, of course, is no. I think Paul gives us two options here and they are not mutually exclusive. Doing one does not get you out of doing number two. The first is that since faith comes from hearing and there are people who don't have Christians around them, that we send people to go preach the gospel. So you can do that by supporting missionaries. You can do that by giving to Bethel since 15% of our resources go to the work of missions so that somebody will go and speak the words of the gospel so that someone may hear and believe. The second option 
and this is the one that is most challenging for me, is we follow the example of Paul in chapter 10. And he has what I'll call the, the CPS model. And I'll confess, this is something that I struggle with even as a pastor. C, you have to care. Can't be indifferent. Look at verse 1. It's his heart's desire that his brothers and sisters are saved. Starts chapter 9 with the declaration, he has great sorrow in his heart and unceasing anguish. Said he'd even be willing, if it were possible, to be cut off from Christ so that his brothers and sisters would be saved. Paul cares. And the sad reality for me and maybe for many of you is that on a daily basis, I don't care enough about the fact that people I know and lots of people I don't know are headed to an eternity of judgment unless someone speaks the gospel to them. C is for care. So if you don't, if you do care, what does Paul do? He prays. That's the P. It's Paul's prayer that his kinsmen would be saved. Before someone can drive all that complicated stuff that's happening in a car, that car has to work. And someone has to go and share. In seminary, I read a book called True Evangelism. And I'll admit, I was disappointed because 90% of that book was about prayer. It was about all the cool ways you're supposed to evangelize. It was about preparing your heart for all the things that God was doing to make that possible. So P is pray. Care and pray and share. How can they believe if they do not hear? So let me ask you this question. Who in your life is waiting for you to share? Who in your life doesn't know another believer who cares about them enough to share the truth of the gospel? You know, you know enough to share. It's simple. <clears throat> it's not complicated. We read it today, Romans 10, 9. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. You can memorize that. If you can remember a phone number, you can remember Romans 10, 9. We don't have to make it more complicated than that. And if you need practice doing that, we've got a wing of the church over there and over here with folks, most of whom are shorter than me, who need to know the truth of the gospel, which means someone has to care enough about them to show up and speak the truth of the gospel to them. And here's what I know 
is that practicing on five-year-olds makes it easier to talk to 50-year-olds. It's the same truth. It's the same message. And you do it enough times with five-year-olds and you're ready when your coworker opens up to you for the first time. It's a great mission field for us here in Bethel and we need more and more of you to step in, to care enough to speak the truth of the gospel, to pray for these kids and to share the truth of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are the creator and